Good morning. Happy to be here with you this morning and to open God's Word. And I'm going to um, sort of skip all of the normal niceties and just get right into it because we got a long road ahead of us today. So be ready for that. Uh, today we're going to continue in Exodus chapter 19. We're going to cover what I think probably should be two sermons. We're going to cover them uh, in one sermon today. And I'm so thankful for the song sermon this morning because what we had from our songs this morning was a display of what we're going to see in Exodus um, 19, 7 through 25, really a picture of a God who is both transcendent and imminent. And we'll talk about that today. Last week we witnessed a shift in what was happening and and going to happen in our story. We saw the people of God um, come to a stop, so to speak. They came to the Sinai wilderness. And what we know is that this is going to be the place that they will be uh, for some time. As a matter of fact, they don't leave the Sinai wilderness. Um, I don't know the exact time off the top of my head, but it's found in numbers. And so they don't leave this Sinai wilderness. I think it's uh, for... Uh, a long time. I probably should have known that if I was going to bring it up, but uh, it's for a while. But we find out in numbers that they actually leave. So the rest of the Exodus story, they are in this area around the Sinai, around Mount Sinai. That's what it's commonly called. Um, it was a celebration of sorts we talked about last week because this is where the Lord told Moses that he would come back and celebrate after he brought his people out of Egypt. The fact that the Lord, was, the Lord told Moses that he and his people would worship at Mount Sinai on this very mountain that the Lord first appeared to Moses would be a sign to confirm that Moses was the leader of his people and it would also be a sign that victory had been won. Today and over the next several weeks, we're going to see um, what God is going to do with his people. He's going to be establishing Um, And I know that this word has a negative connotation, but when it's done properly, uh, it's right. He's going to be establishing a religion. That's what he's doing. He's going to be establishing, really, what's more important, a religious people. And and so over the next several weeks, we're going to see that. And one of the main things that God does to establish a religious people is he lays out an objective standard for them to follow. And we're going to see that through just ten of his commandments over the next few weeks. But there are more Uh, to follow. And today we will see how our text is somewhat of a preparation for God giving the law. It'll be just uh, a little while longer, you know, um, just a few days before Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and the Lord gives him uh, the commands, um, the commandments on the stone tablets. You know the story. We'll talk about it again, so I'm not going to go into it today. Um, So they're at Mount Sinai and and uh, we've described this place a little bit. Uh, some people illustrate it to us as saying, when you approach this mountain, it appears that it just shoots out of the ground, that it, it rises, you know, quickly, not, not like a gradual uh, decline, so it, uh, a, a, a gradual ascent. So, so it, is a, it is a majestic thing to behold. It rises out of the ground up to an elevation of about 8,000 feet. It's surrounded by a flat area that covers about one square mile, but also to the east and west there are other uh, flat areas 
Uh, so you can imagine this picture that we have today of God's people at this base of this majestic-looking mountain. That's where they are today. And Moses has gone up and down the mountain. He is talking to the Lord. And the Lord gives Moses some specific rules for how the people of God are to approach him. And that's where we are in Exodus 19, 7 through 25. And I want to read that with you today. Exodus 19, verses 7 through 25. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I imagine they, don't know, they didn't know what they were committing to at that point. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the, peop- uh, of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people came all the people in the camp trembled then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now mount sinai was wrapped in smoke because the lord had descended on it in fire the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Wow. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, uh, to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and, co- go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. That's a lot, and I think we're going to get through most of it today. Will you pray with me? God, we love you. Lord, we're so grateful that you love us. We're so grateful, God, that you are a God who, in a way, cannot be touched because you are transcendent. But Lord, you are imminent, so you are a God who dwells 
with us. Lord, it is an amazing paradox that we can't explain, nor should we try to. We should just try to understand it to the best of our ability and reap the benefits of knowing such a powerful God, but knowing such a loving and close God. Lord, help us to focus on that today as we see how you reveal yourself to us and how it's important for us to respond. Lord, we love you. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I love how uh, Blake did a great job of setting this up by, by showing the transcendence and, and eminence of God. And as we read through these verses, we're, we're setting something up, really. The Lord is preparing his people for how they will meet with him, how they will approach him, but also how he will come down to them. His people are organizing into a religious people, the people who will develop honor and reverence and respect for the Lord while serving a God who will come down and meet with them and draw them to himself. Now, under the surface, and I've mentioned this a couple times already, so I've given you a little preview, but under the surface, our text presents us with two characteristics of God that are different in nature, but both equally a part of God's nature. This is a paradox found in the ability of God to be both transcendent and imminent. We see that he is transcendent, meaning that he cannot be touched, known, seen, or heard, or many other things that make God far off and, um, and, and away from us. He transcends creation, or he is outside of creation. His transcendent nature is developed because of his many attributes. A few of those that we know he's omnipotent and he's omniscient. He was not created, but he is creator. And the creator cannot be a part of creation because he is the creator. He is holy. He's set apart. These are just a few of the attributes of God that make him transcendent, out of us, untouchable, unknowable in a way. But he is also imminent. You know what a paradox is, right? I mentioned that word a minute ago. A paradox is when two words seem like they are contradicting. Two, two subjects, two things seem like they are contradicting. Seem like they cannot be uh, coexist in the same formula. But somehow they both equally are weird and different but are true. That's what a paradox is. And so this is the paradox. God is transcendent, but he is also imminent. This is not imminent with an eye. Imminent with an eye means that he will, he's close. He is imminent in that way too. He will return someday, and I think it's sooner than later. But he is imminent with an A. That means, imminent with an A means this. It means that God is also contained within creation. This is not as the deist, deist would say, that God is in the trees, and that God is in nature, and, and we should worship nature. No, actually the New Testament writers got on to the people for worshiping nature. They said, you have sacrificed worshiping the Creator to worship the creation. This is not what we should do. This is not what it means that God is imminent. It means that God, because He is omniscient, because He's everywhere, He's omnipresent, He is a part of His creation, but He is still in His transcendent, transcendence outside of creation. He is not the creation, which is nature, but He is, or, or a part of nature, but He is the creator and sustainer. We see this in how He rules over man. 
how he governs his people, and ultimately how he condescended to come to earth to save men from their sins in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In God's divine sovereignty and in his perfect plan, he is both imminent and he is transcendent. Because these concepts are, are too difficult to grasp at sometimes, different societies have lived focusing on one of these aspects over the other. I think it's more natural. I think it has a lot to do with personality too, whether you focus on the eminence of God or whether you focus on the, the transcendence of God. But we live in a society, especially a church culture, that focuses, I think, too heavily on the eminence of God as opposed to the transcendence of God. We focus on God the love as opposed to God the supreme ruler and creator and sustainer of the universe. And I think it is dangerous at times to focus too much on the eminence of God. It's only natural when we have Jesus and when we're presented with this God who loves us and came down to us and sacrificed the riches of heaven for a time to be with us. It's only natural that we want to love him and and focus on those characteristics. But it's also very dangerous to leave out that the God of this world is a God who is supreme, above all, unlike any other. He is holy, and he has some expectations for people. We see God often, especially in our culture, as the little, pale, and weak Jesus. You know, I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. You know, that that guy. And so we take a casual approach to God and a casual approach to church life. We take a casual approach to evangelism and honestly, almost everything else that surrounds God. When we focus too heavily on the eminence of God, it's definitely important to, to focus on that. It's definitely important to have that on the forefront of your mind, the eminence of God, how God is with us and how he loves us. But it's also vastly important to focus on God, the supreme ruler of the universe. It's important that we honor and obey the transcendent God as we love and cherish the imminent God. In our text today, we see how God points to himself as transcendent and also imminent, and how he gives his children instructions for respecting both aspects of his character. And so what, I was, what I've given you today, and I think we can get through those in a normal amount of time, uh, God willing, is five reasons for God revealing his transcendence and eminence in, a, in this way at Mount Sinai. I just called this five reasons for God revealing his transcendence and eminence in this way at Mount Sinai. And I forgot to tell Blake on edit on the last, so write what I say on the last point and not what's up here. Uh, God reveals himself this way, number one, to show his glory. Now, I know I've mentioned the glory of the Lord a million times. If you're tired of it, go somewhere else. Because the glory of the Lord is as vastly important of, as compared to anything else that we can focus on. And so God reveals himself in this way to show his glory. The glory of the Lord, as a matter of fact, is an overarching theme of this section of the text of the Exodus and of the Bible. God reveals himself this way in general all throughout scriptures, but especially in our text. Can you imagine the scene? Thunders. The Bible says thunders, not thunder. 
The Bible says thunders and lightnings and a great thick cloud that comes out and surrounds the mountain and a trumpet blast that is growing louder and louder. If Tim Hagee or whatever that, John Hagee would have gone crazy because he would have thought, this is it. I bet he would, he would have really made the prediction that day and been right for the first time that this is when the Lord was going to return. He would have gone crazy. Because this is like an apocalyptic type scene. The Lord brought us out of Egypt just to take us all away, I guess. Then Moses speaks and the Lord answers. How does he answer? He doesn't answer just in a regular voice. He's not soft, Jesus speaking from heaven. He answers in thunder. In thunder. This must have been some sight. Even for the people of God who had witnessed the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and they'd witnessed Marah and Alim and all of the other miracles that God had performed. This is not just God. This is God showing his glory. But it's not just God showing his glory. It is God showing the people of God a different perspective of his glory. Follow me. To this point, really all of the miracles where God had are were miracles where God had saved or protected the people of God. All of the great showings of the glory of God were where God had saved and protected the people of God. And now God is coming to them really and he's showing his glory in a different way. At the end of every miracle where God showed his glory, the people of God were like, oh man, thanks, you know. All right, you did a great job, God, thanks. You saved us, you brought us water, and you brought us across the Red Sea. You know, we know the song that they sang after the crossing of the Red Sea. They were praising God. Now God is showing his glory. And it said what? It said the mountains trembled and so did the people of God. They feared. They feared. Because God is showing them a transcendent side of himself that they had not experienced firsthand. They experienced it on Pharaoh. They experienced it on the gods of Egypt. But they had not experienced it upon themselves to this point. It was time, as God is showing himself, it was time that God showed himself as a God that even his own people should fear and respect and praise. God reveals himself, I think, in this way. He shows his glory in this way because he's about to give his people ten of the most important commands for living. Now, the Ten Commandments are not the only commandments of God. There are 200 and something commandments given to the people of God to follow. But the Ten Commandments, I think, obviously, by the fact that they're separated, by the fact that they were some of the first, are obviously important commands for God's people to follow. Ten commands for living and serving God. So I think he shows himself, he shows his glory in this way. Because he's setting them up to be prepared. He does another thing. God reveals himself this way to get his people's attention. He shows himself as transcendent, his glory as transcendent, to get their minds attentive, to get them ready to listen. I don't think God revealed himself uh, to his people only to show his glory, but to get their attention. To get their attention so that they might really grasp what was about to happen in the next few 
days. God was establishing a people for himself, and he was recalibrating them, so to speak. An astute person will see the helplessness of the people of God, how they were wandering around aimlessly and without direction. At every turn, they were grumbling and begging for the next thing. They are disorganized and unmotivated people. But God is about to give them perspective and some objective ideals to follow God. One of the quickest ways that I, one of the best things that's happened to me as a manager of people, not just in the context of vintage church, but in the context of my side business, is that I give people objective results or objective standards or objective ideals to follow. When you don't give people those objective results or objective standards or objective ideas, ideals, they wonder. They wonder. And this is what the Lord's about to do, but he needs their attention. He needs their attention. So he, he grasps it. This is the same way we do as parents with our children, right? We do this at time to time. We sometimes feel like we have smoke coming from our head or sometimes we wish we could bring down thunders and lightnings and it would really work, um, you know, a lot better. But we do, in a sense, we raise our voice at times. We, maybe we change the tone of our voice even if we don't raise it or we, we speak clearly or maybe there's a scowl. There's, there's a look that I give my children that they know. They know that look. They recognize that look. And they might not obey it every time, but they recognize that this is, I'm drawing the line, the proverbial line in the sand. Or we look them directly in the face. Every time I think about God getting the attention of his people, I think about how uh, I treat my BB boy. He has the attention span of a puppy in a room full of dog toys. He, he does not have a great attention span. So what I do when I'm trying to get his attention, when I need him to know, because the next result is I'm going to punish him. So he needs to pay attention. What I do is I put my hands like this, like a horse with blinders, and this is what he does. He, he still finds a way. I don't have, if I had three hands, I would, or if I could frame him out completely, it would work. But he, he doesn't look at me. But he still finds a way to not look at me. But I, I say, Bennett, I'm about to tell you something important. So you need to pay attention. Because what's going to happen is, if you don't pay attention, there will be punishment for this. And so this is the Lord getting their attention. He is putting blinders on them. He is putting blinders on them right now because what he's about to say is vastly important. And he wants them to grasp this. He wants them to get this. Friends, I feel like sometimes we feel, especially when we're more immature in our faith, that it's God's prerogative for us to fail. It has never been God's prerogative for us to fail. It's always been God's prerogative for us to succeed. It has always been his plan and purpose for us to, to be able to obey and, and to follow his law, to follow his commands, to follow his rules. So much so that when he knew we couldn't obey them and couldn't follow them, he sent someone who could. He sent Jesus who could. So the Lord is putting on a show so spectacular that it's like putting those blinders on to increase the attention span of his people. And these, these people, I think, had the attention span of a puppy in the middle of a room full of puppy toys. Because every single time the Lord did something good, within a short time they were wondering, where are you, God? Where are you, Lord? What's the next thing you're going to treat us with? 
So the Lord gets their attention. He does this in unique ways for us. Many times he brings goodness along in our lives. He brings joy in our lives. Not only that we will want, not only that we receive the goodness and that we will want more of the goodness, but friends, good, the goodness of God blinds us from desiring anything else, from chasing after anything else. So he brings goodness, not just so we can receive them, so that we can say, when we look to the left, we can say, God's goodness is better. And when we look to the right, we can say, God's goodness is better. It's like writing cheat notes on each hand that show you the goodness of God so that when you look, oh, Mara, oh, Alim, oh, wow. Oh, he struck the rock and he provided water. So anytime we might be distracted to look away, we remember the goodness of God so that we can trust in his goodness. So that we can know that his goodness is better than anything that might sit behind those blinders. He brings trials in our lives. He brings struggles along our way. And friends, listen. Even in our trials, our desperation and our neediness blinds us. It blinds us from going anywhere else if we're following God. Because we look and we say, man, Mara wasn't good, but God did it. Man, we were thirsty, but God saved. And we understand that anything behind those blinders, everything else behind those blinders is our self-effort and self-will. And it's failed every time. Even our desperation blinds us because it points us to the goodness of God. It gives us tunnel vision on how God has saved us in our most desperate times. I would challenge you that when you see the mighty work of God, whether good or bad, that we would trust that it comes from the Lord. That we would trust that His ways are better than ours. And that we would take the opportunity to see what God is saying. To wait on Him. And to give our attention to Him. Friends, we need to be people that understand that even an answer to prayer might not be all that God is trying to give us, tell us, or teach us. And we should know that the primary reason that God answers prayers is for his glory and to gather up our attention on him. Do you understand that? The primary reason God brings trials or he answers prayers is for his glory and to gather our attention. It's not just to... Listen, even most of the time when he answers our prayers, he answers them in sort of a way that is fleeting. So we have to, I challenge you, to look for the eternal aspect of every good and bad thing that happens in your life. He reveals himself this way for his glory. He reveals himself this way to get the attention of his people. God reveals himself this way to emphasize his commands. That's the third one. He reveals himself this way to emphasize his commands. We are right on the edge of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. God is going to come down to Moses and give his people a standard for living, an, object, an objective measure for what it means to be holy. People with a focus on the transcendent nature of God tend to not need this as much as people with a focus on the eminence of God. But in a society that leans on the eminence of God, it's much more important that he emphasizes his commands and that they listen. We all need it, but it's much more important 
when people focus on the eminence of God. Because in those societies that focus on the eminence of God, they have a tendency to look at the qualities of God like obedience to His commands or justice for sin and rebellion, and they overlook them or remove them from their religious practices altogether. People who live in a predominantly eminent society even lean on the side, uh, the side of God that expects Christians not even to obey the law of God. Jesus, I'm saved by Jesus. I'm covered by Jesus. He's got me. God's got me. And there's no expectation to follow the law of God. Friends, there's a name for this. This is called antinomianism. It means, it comes from the word, uh, I think it's a Greek word that means anti-law. This is the belief that Christians are not required to keep any laws of God because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Of course, we know that this is anti-gospel. It's anti the message of Jesus. And like we discussed last week, the standard of God has always been that the people of God perfectly keep his laws, his commands, that the people of God perfectly obey, obey his voice, that every person before Christ came to earth and after Christ came to earth would keep this standard. But we know that obviously this law keeping is not what saves us. Because we don't have enough righteousness in the whole law, our whole body to keep the whole law. As a matter of fact, the Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags. And, and this is not the illustration that the Lord was using in the Bible, but this is a more fitting illustration for this context. This, weekend, or this week I was painting with my painter and we were in a bathroom and we were, it was a tiny bath. It was not tiny, but it was small. And, and we were both trying to do two different things in this small space. And he had this rag on his, you know, if you're a painter, you have a tool. It's called a five-in-one or some kind of scraper type thing. And you have a rag. Those are your two things you always have to have. And he had this rag and it was hanging down low. And I was painting on the other side of the room with a different paint. And the rag drug into the paint. And I see raining paint from his rag, raining paint from his rag. And I'm like, what's going on? Because I can't, it's white and a white rag and I can't see where the paint's coming from. I'm like, this dude's leaking paint. How is this possible? This not, and so he's, dude, I'm like, dude, you're leaking, you're leaking. I didn't know what was going on. I really, it took me like five minutes to figure out what was going on. And what happened is he dipped his rag in the paint and the rag was leaking. But guess what he tried to do then? He tried to clean up the white paint that was on the ground with the rag that already had paint on it. And all that was happening, and this, it was not that much. I'm exaggerating just a little bit. We got it cleaned up. Everything was fine. I didn't get sued or fired or anything like that this time. Um, so anyway, so he pulls this rag out. He pulls this rag out, and he starts wiping this paint off. And, and of course, guess what happens? Instead of the paint getting cleaned up, it spreads to another tile. And it spreads to another tile. And this is the illustration of our righteousness. This is what our righteousness God compares to. It's like, it would be like trying to clean your hand up with that rag afterwards and just covering yourself with paint. Our righteousness is not good, but still, the standard of God is that we keep the whole law. And of course, we know that the good news is that Jesus keeps the law for us. He keeps the law for us. 
I would say this to you that because of the work of Jesus, that now more than ever, it is imperative for the people of God to obey the laws of God and obey the commands of God. Because now when we keep the law, there is a definitive difference in motivation. Before, before Jesus, they, they were, there were great numbers who kept the law. Great numbers who kept the law, and many of them did it as a means of being saved. But now our motivation can be separated because we can say definitively that Jesus has kept the law. Then others, uh, then others might say, well, why would you try so hard? And we would say, we try so hard because he commands us, because he emphasizes the law, and because he has ingrained our hearts with the law at salvation. And as, he, as we keep his commands, he grows us in sanctification. Friends, I would say now more than ever is the appropriate time for Christians to keep the law because we can definitively say God has kept the law for us, praise Jesus, but because he's done that, we're going to continue to obey him. We're going to continue to follow him. And we can separate our motivations. We can separate our motivations for obeying God. As a matter of fact, it was still the ideals, it was still in the mind of the early church that the people of God should still keep the commands of God. We see in 1 John that John says that his commands will not be a burden. His commands will not be a burden. It was John's thought that the people of God, even after Jesus has kept the whole law, should obey the commands of God. John also said uh, in chapter 2 of the same letter, he says that we have come to know him, there's a stipulation, if we keep his commandments. That's how the world, that's how we will know that we come to know him if we keep his commandments. So we strive to keep his commands with his work on the cross in mind. We strive to keep his commands in the power and the will of the Holy Spirit and not our own power. We strive to keep them because he has placed so much emphasis on them as a means of knowing him and being more like him. The Bible says, how do we show our brothers that we love them? How do we show our brothers and sisters that we love them? It's not by saying it. It's not by doing good things for them or to them. The Bible says in the same letters that I just read to you, the Bible says that we show our brothers and sisters that we love them by keeping the law of God, by obeying the law of God. The Bible says how do we show the Lord that we love him? We will show the Lord that we love him by not by coming to church and not by just praising him, not by giving in the offering plate, not by singing or, or listening to sermons or preaching sermons. We show the Lord we love him when we do well to obey the law of God with Jesus in mind. We strive to keep the law because God has placed so much emphasis on the law as a means of knowing God and being more like him. And if we keep them, if we keep the law to, our, to the best of our ability, through the power of the Holy Spirit, with Jesus in mind, then people will know that we were doing it to the glory of the God and not because of fear of reprisal or any other motivation. We're not keeping the law because we fear that God's going to strike us dead with this cloud and this thunder and this lightning and this trumpet, and, and that's the end. We keep the law because God has placed so much emphasis on keeping the law as a means of knowing him to his glory and the power of the Spirit of God. Another reason why God reveals himself in this way, God reveals himself in this way to prove that he has spoken. 
to prove that he has spoken. This is vastly important. The Bible says that the clouds wrapped around the mountain and that thunder and lightning were everywhere and there was a loud trumpet. And all of the people witnessed this. All of the people saw this. And verse 19 says that as God spoke to Moses, the Lord responded in thunder. In thunder. Can you imagine the scene? I imagine it's something like the Upside Down from Stranger Things or or something like a sci-fi movie from the 80s. God is showing off at this point as a means of showing His glory, as a means of getting His people's attention, and as a means of bringing focus on His commands, but also as a means of them knowing that it was not Moses who had spoken this whole time, but it was actually that God was speaking through Moses. He proves that he is transcendent with the clouds and the smoke and the trumpets and the thunder and the lightning. And verse 19 says that the Lord would speak to Moses through the thunder. So you might say, well, how would the people of God know that it wasn't just Moses making stuff up if all they heard was thunder? But that's not all it says. Verse 9 says, look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. It was a belief in Hebrews that as the, as the people of God were reading this thousands of years later that the Lord spoke to the people of God clearly in the thunder. They knew that it was the Lord speaking, that Moses would believe God, that the people would believe Moses forever. So now we have another variable altogether. It's the voice of God coming in the thunder, but in a way that the people of God would hear There would be no doubt that this was the God that Moses had pointed them to. No doubt that it was God speaking to them. Friends, it makes it much easier to hear, uh, for people to hear and believe the voice of God through his minister if that voice is clear and unfiltered. And that's what these people had today. If the people of God know that the words they hear are from their God and the words they hear from their ordained leader are not just his words but God's words, it makes it easier to listen. And I would assert to you the same today. God's people can clearly hear and know the voice of God today. God's people can see his majesty and hear him speak. But it takes God's mediators preaching the word of God and not the topic of the day. It takes God's mediators not diluting the word of God down by opining about how they feel about the culture or the social climate. The Bible speaks clearly and objectively on anything that might happen in the culture a hundred years ago to a thousand years from now. God speaks so clearly and concisely that he doesn't need a translator, but he calls messengers. Do you understand the difference? The Lord speaks so clearly and concisely he doesn't need translators. He needs messengers. There are too many pastors like CNN and Fox News and not enough pastors like Walter Cronkite used to be. Today, CNN and Fox News and all of those, all of those things, they tell you the news as seen from the eyes of the person telling the story. And to a degree, it's always going to be that way. But back in the day, what Walter Cronkite would do is he would sit on the, in front of a camera and he would read the news of the day. Without opinion, or without much opinion, without much (coughs) uh, uh, commentary. And he would just let the people know what was going on. 
Now hear me, listen, one of the main jobs of a a mediator of God today, a a pastor or a preacher, one of the main gods of a gospel uh, proclaimer is to help people navigate the culture with a biblical worldview. And so at times I will insert my comment, my own commentary. I will insert my own opinion. But friends, we need more pastors who preach the gospel and less of their opinions To which I would say, if I ever stop preaching the gospel, if that ever becomes me, I would hope that you would go through the proper channels. I hope you would send the elders of the church to come to me and talk to me about it. But if I don't listen, throw me out. Throw me out. Don't let me stand up here because you love me if I ever say anything that is unloving to God. If it's not something that God would have me say. We see this message today and and every pastor or aspiring pastor or just church gospel proclaimer needs to hear it. It turns out, friends, that all the people needed to believe in God was to hear his voice. And today, faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. It turns out, friends, that if we use his words and his voice that we find in the canonized 66 books of the Bible, that people will still come to him by hearing him and not us. One last thing that God revealed himself, one last way that God revealed himself or God, one reason that he revealed himself in our story, and it's extremely important. Did I have five or six on there? Okay, good. All right, and I, and I think I took off the last part of this point, but God reveals himself this way to show that he is holy. And the last part is just a spoiler alert. God reveals himself in this way to show that he is holy. God reveals himself to show that he is holy. And, and since he is holy, he had several rules for them to follow. This is vastly important, friends. Don't check out. And if you checked out, ding back in right now. The people needed to consecrate themselves. The people needed to wash their garments. They were to abstain from sex. That's what it means if it says, don't go near a woman. They were to abstain from sex. Listen, sex is a gift from God and it is beautiful. But what, they, but the, what the Lord was saying to them was abstain from this as a means of fasting because what's going to happen is important. You are to fast from this to this point. You are to abstain from it because all your attention needs to be on, about, on what is going to happen. And friends, when this is a lesson that we can learn. This is a lesson that preparation to meet with the Lord at least needs to come from consecration of some kind. We need to consecrate ourselves before we meet as a corporate body on Sunday mornings. Long before the Sunday mornings, we should be consecrating ourselves in the Word of God and through prayer and through Christian fellowship. We should be consecrating ourselves through sharing the gospel. We should be consecrating ourselves to meet with God. We live in an imminent society that comes here on Sunday morning and doesn't give any care or concern or little care or concern to what we've done throughout the week. We need to consecrate ourselves by being... Biblical and godly examples to our children, to our wives, to our husbands, to our extended family. We need to consecrate ourselves by being biblical and godly examples to those we work with and come in contact with on a regular basis. The Lord said to them, for them, they were about to meet a holy God. He was about to come down to them and they were going to meet a holy God and they must prepare themselves for that. Friends, if only we treated 
the Sunday morning gathering with the supremacy of God, how much further along would be, would be in worship? Listen, we don't have to change our music. We don't have to change our music style. We don't have to change our sermon style. We don't have to change how excited and jumpy the preacher is. We don't have to exchange who or change who the congregation is. If we just changed our hearts to focus on this being a holy gathering, focused on the supremacy of God, then we would change the way our worship we meet in worship every Sunday. We would change the way our Bible studies happen throughout the week. We would change the way we look at God when we pray and when we open His Word. The Lord's about to tell them something important. And He says, consecrate yourselves. And then He set limits. He set a barrier to the people. He said, look, this is the barrier. Don't put your hand on this mountain. Don't walk up this mountain. Because if you do, the human or the animal, even the animal that does, will be stoned or will be shot with an arrow. Is the first notation of a firing squad in the Bible. He'd be shot with an arrow. And Moses, and then subsequently we see in later later verses of, of this chapter, that Aaron were to be the only ones that were to ascend to the mountain. Moses, because he was God's mediator, but Aaron, because he will soon become the high priest. And that was the method followed for countless years. The high priest was the only one allowed into certain parts of the temple. All of this to show that he is holy and that there is none like him. To show that God is holy and that there is none like him. But not only that, that his holiness is emphasized when we focus on his transcendence, his supreme authority. And it brought up vastly a valid point. For them, that if the Lord is holy and if the Lord is transcendent, that they had no chance of reaching Him unless the high priest went up for them. This, friends, was intended to be an image of a future high priest who would come, to which the writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 7 28 For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And then again in Hebrews 9, thus it was necessary for the copies, the high priest Aaron is a copy, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Praise God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to have those who are eagerly waiting 
uh, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil consciousness and our bodies washed with pure water. Therefore, the beauty of God is that he is holy and transcendent. The depths of his holiness cannot be known, but also that he has made himself imminent and reachable through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Friends, the high priest was just a representation just an image, just a type of a great high priest who condescended to this earth, who, who came and lived a holy life, who died on the cross. I've got a question. Do you think when Moses said, in three days I'll come down, the Lord will come down, you think when Moses said that, you think those New Testament people looked at that and said, three days. Jesus, three days. Three days he'll come back. Three days. God, the transcendent God, will be imminent. He will be with us. He will be reachable. We'll see him. We'll experience him. Friends, I want to tell you, we must trust in the dead, fully buried, and risen king of the universe, the transcendent God who cannot be known or touched, but the imminent God, as we've seen through John, who says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Would you repent and believe him? Would you trust him? And Christian, if you're not obeying him today, would you seek the power of the Holy Spirit to help you walk in the Spirit, to live for him, to obey him, to be more like him. Pray with me today. Lord, supreme God of the universe, there is none like you. How unsearchable you are, how inscrutable you are. Lord, help us to be a people who have as much as we can a balanced focus on the transcendent nature of God, but also the imminent nature of God. The God who is far above, but the God who condescends. Lord, help us as people to repent and believe the gospel, Lord, unto salvation, but also when we're saved, to repent and believe the gospel on a daily basis, to trust in you. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we give you all the glory and praise because it all belongs to you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.